In July of 1961, 38 members from the Green Bay Packers gathered for the first day of training camp. The previous season ended with a heartbreaking loss in the championship game. They didn't have Super Bowls back then. It was the championship game. They lost to the Philadelphia Eagles after they blew a lead in the fourth quarter. This loss was fresh in their mind as they gathered for training camp. They were ready to up their game, to move to the next level. They wanted to fine-tune their skills so that they would be able to take um, the top game, the championship game that season. But their coach, Vince Lombardi, had a different vision for them. He didn't simply want them to fine-tune their skills. Although he was coaching a group of three dozen professional athletes who just months earlier had come within minutes of winning the biggest game in all of professional sports, he thought they needed something different than fine-tuning their fine skills. They needed to start from scratch. They would take nothing for granted. He began that first day of training camp with the most fundamental statement of all. He said, gentlemen, and holding up a pigskin in his right hand, this is a football. This approach continued throughout training camp. He focused on the fundamentals. They worked on blocking. They worked on tackling. As it came to strategy, they turned to page one of their playbook. And six months later, they beat the New York Giants 37-0 to in the championship game. Vince Lombardi went on, as many of you know, to become one of the greatest coaches to ever coach the game. He'd win five championships in seven years. And he did that how? By focusing on the fundamentals was one of the keys to his success. This approach has been critical to all kinds of successful coaches. You think of John Wooden, who taught his players on the first day of practice how to put on their socks, or Phil Jackson in his successful career as well. But it not only applies to sports, it also applies to the Christian life. Our goal as believers is not to win games. Our goal as believers is to become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And how will we do that? We will do it through focusing on the fundamentals. Or as we said last week, of giving ourselves to the means of grace. What are the means of grace? You can go back and listen to the sermon last week that introduced this series. But to put it as simply as I know how, The means of grace are the ordinary ways that God works in our lives to make us more like Jesus, which is the goal of our sanctification. That's what being a a disciple of Jesus is. So the ways that God works to make us more like Jesus. Whether you're a rookie in the Christian life, or maybe 
you're not even yet a believer. You've not yet become a follower of Jesus Christ. Or you're a new believer. You're a rookie. Or maybe you are a seasoned spiritual athlete. You've been following Jesus for decades. It doesn't matter whether you're a beginner or whether you are advanced. We all need the same thing to make progress in the Christian life. We need to focus on the fundamentals. The fundamentals that we're going to focus on during the month of January are the Bible, prayer, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. We could talk about more, but these are the ordinary ways that God works in the lives of his people. This morning our topic is the Bible. There's a sense in which the Bible is the most fundamental of all of the fundamentals because the other things we're going to talk about this month really are either in response to God's Word or they flow out of God's Word. They only make sense in light of God's Word. So the Bible, God's Word, is the fundamental, foundational, fundamental. I have a very basic proposition this morning or maybe a sermon in a sentence. It is this. The Word does the work. If I could expand upon that a bit, I might say the Word of God does the work of God. Or as we receive God's Word through faith, as we read it, as we hear it, as we feed upon it, as we digest upon it, God's Word does God's work by God's Spirit of making us more like God's Son. God's Word does the work. I don't have one main text this morning. I will be all over the Bible. You can jot down a number of the verses that I'll be referencing throughout. But I do have a main proof text for this proposition that is on the screen, and it is 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Maybe you uh, could benefit by turning in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. Did I say Timothy? I meant Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul begins this letter in chapter 1 by thanking God for the Thessalonians. Why does he thank God for the Thessalonians? For their work of faith their labor of love, and their steadfastness in hope. In other words, he thanks God for the work of God that he sees evident in their lives. They are growing. They are bearing the fruit of the Spirit. It is clear that God is working in them, and so he thanks God for them. Then in chapter 2, verse 13, he makes a remarkable statement that I think is linked to this other statement. He says this, and I also thank God constantly for this. So he thanked God for the sanctification he saw in them. He also thanks God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, Paul, the other apostles, you accepted it not as a word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. I want to draw your attention to a couple of things from this verse. 
First of all, notice it doesn't say that God's word was at work in them when they first became Christians. Although that was certainly true. He makes that point in chapter 1. But here he says the word of God, notice the tense of the verb, is at work in you believers. The gospel that worked in the past is still working in the present in making them more like Jesus. The second thing I want you to notice is that the Thessalonians received Paul's words, human words, spoken by Paul and his associates as the very word of God because that's indeed what it was. What Paul's saying here is astounding, but it's not new. This point is made repeatedly throughout the scriptures. God works through his word, but like Vince Lombardi I don't want to assume anything this morning. So we're going to start back at the very beginning and see what the Bible says about the Bible. To see what God's Word says about God's Word. The first part of the sermon will be briefly unpacking a theology of the Bible. If Vince Lombardi started training camp by saying, gentlemen, this is a football, I'm going to be saying, church, this is the Bible. This is what it is that you hold in your hands. My goal is that as you get a grasp of what it is that you hold in your hands, what you hear in the church, read, preached, that you will be more motivated to engage in the Word of God. And that's The second part. So if the first part is saying, this is the Bible, the second part is saying, what's the game plan? How do we put the word that works to work in our lives as believers? So let's begin with the first question. What is the Bible? To put it simply, I may say something like this. The Bible is God's spoken word written down. But to understand the full force of that statement, we have to understand a little bit more about what is God's spoken word and how does it work when it's written down. And so what I want to do is I want to begin in the Old Testament at the very beginning and work our way incrementally to the New Testament to see how the Word works, what it does, and how it came to be written down. Along the way, I'll make three points. I wish they were better, but they're what I was able to come up with. Here's the first one. When God speaks, God acts. There is an inextricable link between what God says and what God does. They're bound up together. This comes out as clear as day in the very first verses of the Bible. God said, let there be light. And there was light. That's the first day of creation. It's even more explicit in the second day. God says... 
Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. It's verse 6. Verse 7. And God made the expanse and separated the waters. Do you see? What God said and what God did were one in the same thing. An intimate relationship between God's words and God's actions. God speaks. God makes. God creates are all a part of the same thing. When God speaks, God acts. But the other thing that we see in Genesis related to this first thing is that God's word not only brings creation into existence, God's word also acts to establish relationship with his people. Now, those of you who are here that may be a little bit skeptical of how we may make so much of the Bible as evangelicals, I want you to hear this point. Some would say, we don't want to worship or idolize the Bible. We want to worship God. You can't have a relationship with God if you do not rightly relate to God's Word. Relationship with God, relationship with His Word are bound up together because that's the way God initiates, establishes, sustains, and furthers relationship with His people. Here's the point. How we respond to God's Word is how we respond to God. Let me try and demonstrate this to you briefly. I wish I could give five or six examples, but I simply don't have time. But right after Adam is created, we know God has a relationship with Adam. He places him in the garden to work it, but then he speaks to Adam. In chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, he gives a command. He says, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God is establishing a relationship with Adam, a relationship where he will live under God's blessing as he lives under God's rule. It's a covenant relationship. It's a relationship that has parameters. And as he lives under God's rule, he will experience God's blessing. That rule is established in this command. If you will obey, if you will believe and obey my words... You will walk with me. You will have life. If you do not respond to my words in faith and obedience, you will die. You will be separated from relationship with me. And then we come to chapter 3 and what happens? Do Adam and Eve listen to God's words spoken in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17? Do they believe in God's word? No. Instead, they listen to a competing voice, the voice of the serpent, the voice of Satan. Not listening to God's word is not listening to God. Not believing in God's word is not believing in God. Breaking God's word results in breaking relationship with God. And so Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, from God's presence, his relational presence, 
And eventually, you can read about this in chapter 5, they die. So breaking God's word, breaking relationship with God, but also obeying God's word, establishing relationship with God. We see this in Exodus 19. The Lord tells Moses to say to Israel, this is on Mount Sinai, they've been redeemed. He's establishing them. Notice what he says. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my commandments, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Word and relationship with God are bound up together. God's word works in creation. What he says, he does. But it also works in establishing and sustaining relationship between God and his people. How we relate to his word is how we relate to God. And it's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of knowing God or not knowing In this last example in Exodus 19, we see an important development in the doctrine of God's Word that I don't want you to miss. It's not just God's Word spoken directly from the mouth of God that works. That's obvious in Scripture. That's even intuitive that if God would speak, things would happen. But it's also true that when God's Word is spoken through his appointed prophets, like Moses in Exodus 19, others, and later through his appointed apostles, that that same word is active and at work. You see what I'm saying? Not just God's word spoken directly, like we see in Genesis 1, but also God's word spoken through appointed prophets is effective and powerful. Here's the point. When God's spokesmen speak, God speaks. I'm speaking here specifically, not just of any spokesman, but the prophets and later the apostles. Throughout the prophetic books, I want to illustrate this here. You see the prophets receiving the word of God directly, but then delivering that word to the people. And the word spoken through the prophet is God's powerful word that works. I think of Jeremiah 1, verses 9 and 10, which we read a few weeks ago. It says this, Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Okay? So Jeremiah has God's words. Then notice what it says. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, and to build, and to plant. Do you see? Jeremiah's words are God's words. And as Jeremiah speaks God's words, things happen. Things are tore down, and things are built up. God affects judgment. He affects it, not just announces it. And salvation through His Word. 
But it wasn't only Jeremiah's spoken words that would have this powerful effect. Later in chapter 36, God commands Jeremiah to write those words down so that they can be read, so that people could repent and believe. Even the written word of Jeremiah, which is the word of God, is going to be used to have an effect on people. This reminds me of another prophet, Isaiah. God also touched his lips and spoke through him. And he said this in Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I don't want to beat a dead horse. But this is the repeated testimony of Scripture. The word from God given to the prophet, spoken by the prophet, even written down in the Scriptures, is the very word of God that does the very work of God. There's one more point that needs to be made, though, about these Scriptures that have been written down. Moses's, Isaiah's, uh, Jeremiah's, many others that have been written down for us. Words of God given to the prophet, written in the Scriptures, were not just a word for them then. They are also a word for us now, for us today. To illustrate this point, I want to draw your attention to Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. The writer of the Hebrews is exhorting the first century church to persevere in the faith. The whole book of Hebrews is about the supremacy of Christ, that's the theological point, and the perseverance or the endurance of the church in faith. That's the pastoral point. Well, chapters 3 and 4 are really big on this point of perseverance. And what the writer of Hebrews does is he takes a passage from Scripture and puts it to work in his agenda of seeing the church persevere in the faith. The passage is Psalm 95. And in that passage, I want you to see this very clearly. He speaks of Psalm 95 in two different ways. In chapter 3, verse 7, he says, Therefore the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. Then in chapter 4, verse 7, he quotes the psalm again, and he says, God appoints a certain day today, saying, notice this, through David, in the words that were already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at the rebellion. Do you see where I'm going with this? Do you notice what's happening? In chapter 4, David speaks. It's very clear that God is speaking through him. And he wrote that down in Psalm 95. David speaks, God's speaking through him, but that word doesn't fall flat today. It's not dead. 3.7 makes that very clear, where he says, the Holy Spirit says. It's in the present tense. What he is saying is that the word of David, which was the word of God, which is written down in our Bible in Psalm 95, is the Holy Spirit speaking now. Do you get the tremendous import of this truth? 
What we have written in our Bibles is God's Word speaking, not just spoken, speaking in the present tense to people today. And so it's no surprise that the author of Hebrews would then end his argument in this section in verse 12 of chapter 4 by saying the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Do you see? It's getting stuff done. It's piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's Word in Psalm 95 was at work in the church that the author of the Hebrews was writing to to help them persevere in the faith so that they would be like Jesus, the one who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. The Word of God was at work in the people of God to conform them into the image of God's Son. Speaking of Jesus, let's now turn to the New Testament to continue our survey. Look back at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is the hinge. What we have in the Old Testament is a remarkable gift from God. But what we have in Jesus is even more. Look at what it says in verse 1. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke, there's our word, to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. You see that same concept in John. We get, we get a look behind the curtain to see what God was doing in creation. The Son was at work even in creation of speaking creation into existence. God has spoken in the Old Testament and the Word continues to speak and to act. But in these last days, God has spoken supremely through His Son. So John 1 calls Jesus what? The Word of God. It's clear throughout the Gospels. If you're reading in your Bible reading plan in John, you'll see this, that Jesus does the works that the Father gave him to do. But it's also clear that he speaks the words that the Father gave him to speak. And those words that he speaks are just as active as the words he spoke in creation. This is what I want to draw your attention to about his words. He says, my words are the very words of life. Life. Key word in John. That's why Peter says, as we sung earlier, where else shall we go, Lord? Where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And what is eternal life? According to the Gospel of John, Jesus tells us in chapter 17, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Do you see the connection with the points I was making earlier about the Old Testament? Eternal life is knowing God. It's Jesus' words that give life. 
It's Jesus' words that make it possible for us to enter into a relationship with God, to know God. Jesus' words not only create the universe, they also recreate. They regenerate us. They make us new. We are no longer an old creation. We are a new creation through the word of Christ. We are reconciled to the relationship with God that our first parents were banished from in the garden. The word of Christ is life. Eternal life. Knowing God. Thankfully, his words did not fall flat and just stay with the first apostles. Jesus gave them the word that the Father gave to him and then others, as he predicted, came to believe through the words that he gave to them. Their words were written down as he predicted they would be in chapter 16 as they were guided by the Holy Spirit. And then at the end of John, he can say this. Jesus did all kinds of things. I, I, I couldn't even write them all down. But these are written, written down in your Bibles so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This brings us full circle back to 1 Thessalonians 2.13, how can Paul say that his apostolic word is the very word of God and that that word is at work in believers? Because that's the way God's word works. Plain and simple. When God speaks, he acts. When God speaks, he establishes relationship, strengthens relationship, sustains relationship with his people, even in the words that were written down by the apostles and the prophets, which Ephesians 2.20 tells us the foundation of the church is Christ and the apostles and the prophets. Friends, this is not a football. This is the very word of God. God's powerful, effective, relational word. Do you realize the great privilege that we have to have his word that does his work? If so, what's the game plan? How are we going to put to work the word that works in our life as believers? I want to call three plays this morning. They're not trick plays. They're not for advanced athletes, although advanced athletes should use them. They are basic plays, basic ways that God works in your life to make you more like Jesus. These three plays, three applications, I have organized around three domains of our life. They are not exhaustive. I wish I could say a lot more. But three domains... Three applications, three plays, if you will. The first is this. We need to hear the word of God in church. On Sunday morning. The reason I start here, I know it's maybe a little counterintuitive, 
but I think it's primary. And the reason for that is because I believe what we do in church on Sunday, especially in our corporate worship, but also in classes, sets the tone for what we do in the rest of our week. As we engage with the Word in the week, what we do as a church in the pillar, in the buttress of truth, that's what Christ called the church, informs what we do with the Word out in the world and in our lives. It sets the tone for it. The other reason I put it first is because God has actually commanded a lot of ways for us to engage with the Word. And I would say that of all of the ways that God has expressly and explicitly commanded us to engage in His Word, the highest concentration of those happen on a Sunday morning. Let me just give you a few examples. Paul commanded Timothy, you can read about this in 1 Timothy 4, to publicly read the Scriptures in the corporate assembly. We do that every Sunday. There's, there's not many other places in your week that you can do that. We are commanded in Colossians 3 to let the Word of Christ, which we've been speaking of, dwell richly in us. How do we do that? Through teaching and admonishing one another, Paul goes on to say, and through singing to one another psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's what we do when we gather on Sundays. We teach and admonish one another. We sing the word of Christ to one another so that it may dwell richly in us. Lastly, a reason I would put this as a way that we do what God calls us to do is that in the pastoral epistles, we see a repeated pattern that God has established that there be pastors and elders within the church. We're told that God gives the church pastors and elders, but the church then recognizes them and sets them apart for the task of shepherding and equipping. Every member is a minister, and yet at the same time, there is a role for the shepherds, the pastors, and the teachers. What is the main thing that a pastor and teacher is called to do? Many things, but what's the main thing? What's the non-negotiable thing? What's the only unique requirement for an elder in 1 Timothy 3? The only unique requirement, responsibility. He needs to be able to teach. What does Paul admonish Timothy to do? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience. What I'm trying to get at It may seem self-serving, but one of the most basic and primary ways that we hear the Word of God is through sermons on Sunday morning. And I believe that this is true. This is why I do what I do. I don't believe that I'm special. I don't believe that I'm any more spiritual than any of you. But I believe that when God's Word is faithfully preached, God's voice is powerfully heard. And we need to listen to it. And so can I give three practical ways that you can engage intentionally in sermons on Sunday? Two of them have nothing to do with listening to the sermon. The first is prepare beforehand. When there's a passage assigned for the coming week, read that passage ahead of time. Prayerfully ask God to work in your heart as you come to hear that word and to work in the life of the church, not just you as an individual. As you come, 
Listen as attentively as you can to hear God's word. There will be things that I say and that other pastors say that are not of God. We're fallible humans. But listen for the voice of God in the preaching of God's word. If you need to take notes to pay attention, do that. Thirdly, and most importantly, resolve to respond to the word of God after the sermon. Go back through the passage prayerfully asking, God, help me to respond to what you are saying. Discuss the word with other brothers and sisters in Christ who have heard it. Get in a sermon-based small group where you can prayerfully encourage one another to respond to God's word. I start with the primacy of corporate hearing because I believe that we never will truly rightly understand the word of God unless we do so corporately within the church. We need each other to understand and to apply God's word. And that leads me to a second thing that we don't talk a lot about here, but I think it's important. We need to hear the word in our homes. In Ephesians 6, Paul commands fathers to bring their children up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. One of the basic ways our children hear the word is from their parents. I know that is daunting to some of you, but let me just say, it doesn't have to be a seminary education that you're giving your children. Simply reading the Bible two or three days a week, maybe going through a catechism like the New City Catechism, a question a week, praying together, maybe singing some hymns of the faith together. Those things, small things, a few days over the course of years will have a tremendous effect on helping your kids come to hear the word of God. You guys all know what Joshua 24 says if you've been a Christian for any period of time. What does Joshua say? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the last chapter of Joshua. We should not forget what God commanded Joshua in the first chapter of Joshua. He said, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, speaking to Joshua, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. This is the point I want to make. I could make it from Deuteronomy 6 as well. We can't give away what we don't have. We can't build up our family to serve the Lord, to know the Lord, if we don't know the Lord and serve the Lord. And how are we going to do that? Remember what I said in the second point. The way we relate to God is the way we relate to his word. We need to chew on it, meditate on it for our own nourishment, but then so that we can be useful to other people as well. And that leads me to the third domain we need to personally read God's Word. Having God's Word in our own language and readily available, do you understand what a tremendous blessing that is? I think it's so easy to take it for granted. There's so many people that do not avail themselves of this blessing. But it's New Year's. And you're making resolutions, right? So why not resolve to spend more time 
Whatever it is now, simply more. More time in God's Word so that God's Word can work in your life. If you don't know where to start, the only place I know to tell you is to use Don Carson's book, For the Love of God. And the reason that's the only main thing I know to tell you is because that's basically all that I've used since Tom Macy introduced that plan to us in 2000, the year 2000, uh, December of 1999 to be more precise. If you follow that plan, you will work your way through all of the Bible once in a year in the New Testament and Psalms twice. If that's too much, you can just do two of the four readings, and that'll get you through it in two years. The reason I like this plan, it's not the only one, is it gets you through all of Scripture. And what does 2 Timothy 3 say? All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. And so for me, it's important to be in all of it if possible. Would you resolve to spend more time in God's Word, in the church, in your home, and in your personal life? There are a lot of competing voices in our world today. That's been true ever since the beginning, ever since Genesis 3. If we saw earlier, whose voice was the competing voice there? It was the voice of the serpent. And Adam and Eve listened to that voice, and it resulted in catastrophe. Today, there are still many voices that are competing for God's Word, whether it be in media or in the marketplace. And friends, let me just tell you, you're fooling yourself if you don't think that they're forming you. Or if I could put it this way, if you don't think those words are doing their work on your heart and in your life. So let me simply ask you to evaluate your inputs. What are the dominant voices in your life? Maybe think about it this way. Some people find it daunting to think about reading through the Bible in a year. Did you know that the average television, um, uh, the amount of time people spend watching television in uh, a week, you could read through the whole Bible in a month? You got time. You're listening to voices. You're hearing words. Whose? Do a little bit of an evaluation of what you're hearing. Now, that is not to say that you shouldn't read the news, that you shouldn't be on social media. I'm not saying any of that kind of thing. But is the Word of God dominant enough in your life that it has captivated your heart and that it informs the way that you receive these other voices? Is it baked in to your heart? Or is it just like a little bit of ketchup on your life? The vision for this series is that you would be planted by streams of water. That you would plant yourself there. By the streams of God's grace so that God can work in your life. 
And as you squarely plant yourself in God's word, it's going to do its work. If you believe the words that you're speaking, you're going to bear fruit in season. Maybe not tomorrow, but in due course, the Spirit is going to work in your life. It's going to help you to not wither and fade away. It's going to help you to prosper, not in a worldly sense, but in that the Word is going to do its work in helping you to live the life that Christ has called you to live. Most importantly, as you immerse yourself into the Word, you are going to grow in your relationship and intimacy with God. That's why He made you. That's why He redeemed you. Because He wants to know you. That's life. And that life, that knowledge of God, comes through the Word of Christ. There is nothing more fundamental to making progress as a disciple of Jesus than hearing your word, hearing his word. So where are you at today? Maybe you've not yet even come to believe in Jesus. What's the next step for you? Read his word. Where he tells you about what his son has done for you to die for your sins. What if you're a rookie in the Christian life? What's the next step for you? Hear his word. What if you're a seasoned saint? What if you've been walking with Jesus forever? What's the next step for you? Engage in his word. The fundamentals apply to professional athletes and to rookie athletes. They apply to new Christians as well as to mature Christians. Give yourself to the word. Plant yourself by the streams of grace and watch God do his work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is not silent. That you are a speaking God and that you speak because you want to be known. Not only known about, but known personally. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your written word and in your living son. I pray that we will embrace your word by faith and that you will do your work in our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name.